Awesome. Awesome. Man, am I glad you're awake this morning. Because, <laughs> and if you're not, you are now. Um, what I want you to do before you sit down is I want you to turn, right, as you know, we're starting our summer series here, the preaching series, and our kids picked the series. They picked their favorite Sunday school stories, and that is what we're going to be walking through this summer. So what I want you to do, because you might feel gypped, I'm not sure, what I want you to do is look at somebody next to you and you tell them what your favorite Sunday school story is of all time, and then you can have a seat. So go ahead. Oh, baby. <laughs> I didn't say you had to tell the whole story, John. Man, I, I am excited about this series. I'm excited about the opportunity to tell the stories and, and, and be reminded of some of those things we learned in Sunday school. I am excited that some of our young people are in this room with us this morning. And so if you're here and you're normally in a Sunday school class, I'm glad you're here. This is where I yell at mom and dad for about a half an hour, 40 minutes every week. Um, but, but, but we're going to tell the story. And what I want to do this morning is this. I'm going to do the story in a way that's going to help some of our younger members be able to follow it. That should mean some of our not-so-younger members should be able to follow it, too. I'm going to do the story in a way that um, my children have begged me to do for years, and so this is what we're going to do. We, this morning, how many of you enjoy a great movie every now and then? And the power of a good movie is not just the acting and the makeup and the sets and the scenery. A lot of the power in a movie, which you're not aware of sometimes, is the soundtrack. When you hear me, so, so how many of you could actually watch Star Wars without the Star Wars soundtrack? Nah, it loses something, doesn't it? So, so you need a good soundtrack, you need good sound effects, you need good sound structure to carry the story. And so this morning, we're going to be in the book of Judges, chapter 4. Judges chapter 4, I'm going to walk through that entire chapter, and we're going to talk about the story of Deborah and Barak. I know in the last 10 years, the name has become Barak, but I learned it as Barak, so I'm just going to keep calling it Barak, all right? So Deborah and Barak, and we're going to be in Judges chapter 4. Just a little background for you in the book of Judges, and then we'll, we'll get into it, and you'll understand what I mean by a good sound set that will help carry the day. The book of Judges is known for being a story about the Israelites and their repeated sinfulness, and how they would fall, 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 and then they would get into lots of trouble, and then they would be like, oh, God, help us, and then he would provide a judge who would come in and save the day, and then they would be, you know, okay for a little amount of time, a little period of time, and then, and then... They would fall again and sin again and sin again, and then somebody would come in and oppress them. And so it's this constant cycle that's happening, okay? Well, we get into Judges chapter 4, the cycle has happened again. And here we go. Judges chapter 4. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harisheth Hegium. Now because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron, he had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, and they finally cried out to the Lord for help. So you feel it, right? 
There's a situation that has arisen, and now, now there's this, this amazing thing that's happened to the, the people here is, is there's this fellow named Sisera, who is the commander of the armies, and it says that he has 900 chariots of iron, not chariots of fire, chariots of iron. That was kind of like the smart bomb technology of their day. These chariots wouldn't be pure iron or else they wouldn't move, but they would be, they'd be covered in iron so that way they would be impenetrable, they would be stronger, they would be, be um, much more effective at their warfare. And so these iron chariots would find flat land, dried up riverbeds were their preferred place, and they would patrol that area. And if ever a battle happened there, they would certainly win because they'd be able to move so fast and just wipe so many people out. It was so bad in those days that we're, we're told here in, in Judges chapter uh, five, it says this, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, and in the days of Jael, people avoided the main roads and travelers stayed on winding pathways. It was so bad that the people of Israel stayed away from the main roads where those iron chariots would have been zoop, zim, zoop, 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 zoop. I'm not sure what that was. Um, well, the iron chariots were zipping, there's the word, up and down the streets. And, and so they were trying to stay away from them. So they would stick to the back roads. And then Judges 5, 8 says that the people had chosen new gods. And so war had come to their city gates. And, and, and what made things worse was they didn't have any spears. They had no shields. They had no way to protect themselves. And so Sisera was able to take over the area. So you get that dark, deep feeling. But then in verse 4, we're introduced to a lady named Deborah. All right, good. Verse four. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at this time. And she held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. So now, so now what's happening is this. Deborah is stepping up. That is not a normal situation for the children of Israel. Now, we're not going to get into all of the different things today about women and women in leadership and what that looks like. What we're going to say is this. Deborah was filling a role in this time period that would have been surprising to your average Hebrew. For, for, for a Hebrew man to go to a woman judge to have their case heard and decided and then actually listen to what she said, that, that wasn't very common at all. But there's Deborah serving where she is. Ah, verse 6. Deborah sends for Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kedesh and Nephtali, and she says to him this, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and I will give him into your hands. So, so what's happening here is Deborah is getting this man named Barak wound up. We don't know anything about Barak before this point. Other than Deborah says to him, has not God already commanded you and called you to do this? Why are you here? God has given uh, Sisera into your hands already. And so now you're going to go to Mount Tabor and you're going to get your men and God's going to bring the army to you and you are going to take care of the victory as God lures them into your hands. I mean, it's a pretty good challenge. Right? I mean, Deborah is a well-respected lady and she's saying, okay, God has said, go. Now look at, uh, at Barak's response in verse 8. Barak says this to her. If you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. And Deborah's response Come was, on, girly man. Oh, let me try that again. Come on, girly man. There we go. That was the best sound effect. I messed it up. Barak actually looks at Deborah, 
who has just told Barak, if you go, God's going to lure the enemy into your presence and you will most certainly have victory. And Barak's like, oh, I don't want to. If you go with me, I'll go. But if you refuse, then I'm not going. So Deborah responds actually in verse 9 and says, certainly I'll go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, that is not going himself, but instead demanding that Deborah goes with him. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. That was a little shocking. You think it's shocking that a a woman's judging and a woman's leading among the Hebrews. Now she just said, you know who's going to win this battle? Who's going to get the honor for winning this battle? A woman. So let's continue in verse 9. So Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh. And there, Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. 10,000 men went up under his command. And of course, Deborah also went up with him. Now, have you ever watched a movie and the scene suddenly changes unexpectedly and you're looking at it like, what was that? You know, it's got like that, when the sign shows up, it says, meanwhile, right? Well, you get a meanwhile in verse 11. See, 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 now Barak is out and he's collecting all these men. He's like, we're going to go to battle. We're going to go to battle. And you kind of picture in your head this dark scenery. It's gloomy, but there's a battle raging. This type of music in the background. And then suddenly in verse 11, the music changes to something like this. Oh, it's pretty. Picture skipping through the daisy fields. The wheat waving in the wind. And we find out why. Verse 11, Heber, which is a great name, by the way, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites and the descendants of Hobab, Moses' his brother-in-law, and he pitched his tent by the great tree in Zenim near Kedesh. Huh? I mean, there's, there's no point for that verse in the middle of this context other than this guy named Heber went and he separated from the rest of the people and he went north and he made his home among the, the breezy fields. And his wife skipping with a daisy behind her ear. And then you get back to the rest of the story in verse 12. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone from Mount Tabor. <laughs> Sisera summoned from Hereseth Hagium to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. So visualize it. Barak's getting his men to the top of Mount Tabor. Sisera, he's getting all 900 chariots. He's not going to bring like a small 30 of them. Oh no, he's a mean guy, as the music would show. He gathers them all and he heads to the Kishon River Valley for this battle that's going to happen. He's brought all of his men. He's brought all 900 chariots for this incredible war that's about to occur. In verse 14, Deborah starts charging Barak up. Deborah says to him, okay, now go. This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And there was this great battle that occurred. You're welcome. 
Now, at, at Barak's advance, verse 15, the Lord routed Sisera in all his chariots and army by the sword. Ah, that's all right. And Sisera got down from his chariot and he fled on foot. Okay? Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Haggium, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword, and not a man was left. Now, hold on a second. 900 iron chariots, the smart bomb of the day. Barak, the reluctant warrior. Deborah, how did this happen? How, how, could, how could Barak have possibly defeated Sisera and all his men? Well, see, Judges 4 is really cool. It tells us the, the story as we would um, be acquainted with a story, as we'd be used to reading a story. But then when you get to Judges 5, what you get is Barak and Deborah write a song about it. So it's a little more poetic, it's a little more um, flowery, but it's, 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 it gives us information that we don't actually get in chapter 4. For example, Judges chapter 5, verse 4, it says this, Lord, when you set out from Seir and marched across the fields of Edom, the earth trembled and the cloudy skies poured down rain. Judges 5, 21, the Kishon River Valley, the Kishon, sorry, the Kishon River, it swept them away, the ancient torrent, the Kishon, oh, march on with courage, my soul. There's the flowery, more song-like information there. But here's the point. The point is this. When, 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 when Barak and Deborah and the armies were at the top of the mountain and Sisera was in the river valley, the dried up river valley, suddenly out of nowhere, the heavens opened up and God brought rain. It's interesting. There's uh, accounts from World War I, a uh, similar area that talked about how, how the soil was filled with so much clay that all it took was a little bit of rain for about 15 minutes and everybody would be bogged down and not able to move. So as the rain came, so did Barak and the men and they routed all of the, the armies except for Sisera. See, as you remember, Sisera fled on foot, verse 17 says. Well, where did he go? It says he fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. Remember Heber skipping through the fields, verse 11? Oh, suddenly we come back around to that. He fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the family of Heber, the Kenite. Now, as he fled to that tent, Jael went out to meet Sisera, and she said to him, well, come to me, my lord. Come on right in. Don't be afraid. Just, just to be clear, young people, if you meet a stranger and they tell you not to be afraid, be afraid. All right, here we go. So he enters her tent and she covers him with a blanket. Cicero, after a very rough day, says, I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. So she, she opened up a skin of milk and she gave him a drink and then she, she covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there, you say no. And there's Sisera. After a very stressful day, very long day, tiring day with lots of exercise, after just downing a big old thing of milk, lying under a nice, warm, comfy blanket. You know what comes next, right? Yeah. 
sister falls asleep. Okay, okay, got that. Okay, he's asleep. And Jael gets to work. (laughs) Jael, Heber's wife, verse 21, picked up a tent peg and a hammer. She went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep because he was exhausted. And she drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. So, so, so what in the world is Jael up to? This is kind of how the sound effects might go. I don't know. Good morning. <laughs> there you go. My best effort. So, 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 so she gets, oh, now, now, wait a minute. Now, okay, this is not meant to be chauvinistic at all, but some people will read that and be like, now, okay, how would a woman have the wherewithal to pick up a hammer and a tent peg and be able to, come on. In our case, in our family, how would Frank be able to pick up a hammer and t- just being honest? Well, actually, this people group um, was known for the fact that their women were the ones who set up their tents. And so as Jael stands over Sisera, poor sleeping Sisera, it says that she takes the hammer and the tent peg and she drives it through his temple right into the ground. And I love the simplicity of the end of verse 21, and he died. You think? But wait, what's even better than that? <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is awesome. In chapter 5, okay, <laughs> I need a beret and uh, one of those conga drums for one of those open mic poetry nights. Because chapter 5, verse 21 reads exactly like that. So here, let me put it in front of you. Chapter 5, sorry, verse 26, it says, Her hand, it reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell, there he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell. Dead. I mean, it's that perfect layout of, oh, very poetic. So now, Sisera is dead. Verse 22, just then Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Oh, come here, she said. I'll show you the man you're looking for. Now, imagine for a moment, but Barak being the, the mighty warrior now all of a sudden, and, and he runs into Jael, and he's like, have you seen this man? She's like, oh, I know where he is. He's in my tent. Follow me, and I'll show you. He had to have been like, no, get out of my way, ma'am. I'll protect you, right? And he's probably walking in like, where is he? And it says this, he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. Now imagine this for a moment. The commander who is responsible for terrorizing the Israelites for all of these years is now dead. It's over. How do you think Barak responded? Do you think that he nonchalantly walked out of the tent like, yep, I knew that was going to happen? Or do you think in his mind he went back to Deborah saying, the glory will not be yours. It's going to belong to a woman instead. I bet you Barak had it wrong the whole time, don't you? He had to have been thinking Deborah. And yet here's Jael with the glory of killing Sisera. News gets back to the people, they find out Cicero's dead, and there's great celebration throughout all the land. <laughs> and as a result, the land had peace, chapter 5, verse 31 tells us, for 40 
years. And there's the story of Deborah and Barak. So what in the world can you learn from that? What would the point possibly be? Well, it depends on whose perspective you're looking at. So let's begin by looking at Deborah's perspective. As you read through the story of Deborah, what you find is that she was faithful and she was willing to serve in a spot even when it would have been culturally unacceptable or at the very least culturally unexpected at the time. That's a consistent message in Scripture, you know. That God uses surprising ways to deliver his people from their hopeless situations. That you see that all through Scripture from beginning to end. Think about Jacob's 12 kids and his family was rescued from a brutal famine by one of his own children who the rest of his siblings had sold into slavery years before. And now somehow he had worked his way up the ranks and now he's the prime minister of the great power in the world, Egypt. God uses surprising ways to deliver his people from hopeless situations. How about even Moses? Moses was supposed to die as an infant. Moses' parents put him in a basket and float him down the river and just happens to end up with Pharaoh's daughter. So the step-grandson of Pharaoh ends up being the one who leads the Hebrews out of Egypt. God uses surprising ways to deliver his people from hopeless situations. Jericho. Good battle plan, right? No, that was God using a surprising way. Gideon, also found in the book of Judges. Gideon's one of my favorite stories in all Scripture because you have the story of this man who was, I don't know if I can do this, I don't want to do this. You sure you want me to do this, God? How about a test? Okay, how about another test? Any of you ever done that? Like, all right, fine. And then he starts leading. He's got 32,000 men, and he's supposed to go against the Midianites. And, and later, the Midianites are described as the armies were as thick as locusts. That's how many people were in the armies. And camels, the camels that the Midianites had were as many as the sand of the seashore. Gideon only has 32,000 men. And yet he's willing to go. And God says, hold on, hold on, hold on. You got too many. Why don't you ask the boys how many of them are afraid? And you let them know, if you're afraid, you can go home. So Gideon stands in front of his 32,000 men, probably in the back of his mind thinking, I got the best men. They're going to be just fine. Hey, guys, here's the deal. If you're afraid, you can go home. And it had to have been like this this hurricane wave of wind as everybody ran. 22,000 men left. All right, I got 10,000. We'll give it a go. So God, what's next? Ah, uh, uh, buddy, that's cute. You still got too many men. So what I want you to do is take those 10,000 men to the river and I want them to, to uh, um, get a drink and I want you to watch how they drink and I want you to separate them. The guys who go on all fours and stick their head in versus the guys who get on a knee and cup the water and lap it up. So Gideon's got <laughs> to be watching it for a little while. And as the numbers are getting more extreme, he had to be like, hold on, hold on, hold on, before you drink. You sure you want to do it that way? Maybe you could, oh, whatever. He gets done. There's two groups of men. 9,700 went face first into the water. 300 cupped it like, and lapped it up like a dog. And God said, hey, buddy, guess who you're bringing into battle with you? 
the 300. All right. Yeah, but still, you don't get to fight with conventional weapons. Here's the plan. Take a torch, stick it inside of a clay pot, give everybody a trumpet. Good luck. What kind of battle plan is that? But Gideon and his men, they, they, they follow exactly what God calls them to do. And so, so they head down outside of the camp of the Midianites and they blow their trumpet and they smash the, the, the clay pot and they hold the lantern and they yell out, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And the Midianites turn on each other and begin to wipe each other out. And Gideon and his men have the victory without a shot fired. Not conventional. You're not going to find that at at West Point as a teaching tool. But God doesn't always go conventional. God works through surprising ways to deliver his people in hopeless situations. Okay, so, so you, you get to Jehoshaphat in 2 Kings 20 and they're surrounded by the Edomites. King Jehoshaphat falls on his face and says, God, we have no power to face this vast army that's attacking us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. What a beautiful prayer. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And God answers, and here's a surprising battle plan. Take your choir, put them on the front line. You don't think of choir as the most um, aggressive people, particularly the way the choir is dressed back in this day. They weren't intimidating. They sounded purdy. So what was the battle plan? How did they attack them? The choir marched into the camp singing this, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. And by the time Jehoshaphat and his men made it to camp of the Midianites, there was nobody left. See, God uses surprising ways to deliver his people from hopeless situations. Bring it all the way to Jesus. His people, so reading through, we were talking to somebody this morning, as they're reading through the Old Testament, it's like, man, when we get to the New Testament eventually, please. So hard and harsh and demanding. And, and think about the poor Israelites. Who, who at some point had to get to the place where they're like, would the Messiah please come now? And in their mind, the Messiah wasn't who he really was. In their mind, the Messiah was the, 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 a great military leader or a wonderful champion. And what do they get? A baby. That's not exactly what they expected. I mean, in their mind, they're, they're longing for a great politician or somebody who's going to win a wonderful uh, battle, who's going to carry the army into victory. They're, they're longing for that. And what do they get? A fellow who rides into town on the back of a donkey. They, they, they think the best thing that could happen would be an angel visiting from God and wiping out all those who stood in opposition to their Messiah. And instead what they get is a Messiah who willingly lays down his life on a cross. They, they want a, a ruler who's going to be ruling successfully for an exorbitant amount of years, for a very long amount of time. They, they want a, a champion. And their champion is crucified and laid in a tomb. 
And then they think it's all over. It's done. And then they got their surprise. Jesus Christ rose, and he lives. Now, none of us would have mapped it out that way. But God, in his infinite wisdom, before the very foundations of the earth, had made this plan. And it's far greater than anything you and I could ever do. So I think that the picture of the story of Deborah is that God uses surprising ways to deliver his people from hopeless situations. What about Barak? What about Barak? God clearly called Barak to do something. He promised him victory, and Barak needed a shove instead of willingly just running out there and, and going at it. Why? Why did, why did Barak need help like that? We, we, don't, we don't know. We, we don't know if, 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 if maybe he was insecure. We don't know if he was worried about something. We, we have no idea. But why don't you do what God's called you to do? Why don't you follow God when he has clearly laid out for you what he expects from you? Is it fear? Are you afraid? Is it, is it insecurity? Maybe as you consider what it is God's called you to do, you don't think you have enough time or talent to pull it off. Maybe you don't feel like you're good enough to serve an awesome God. And maybe that's because you struggle. What do you struggle with? It could be anything. You struggle with lust, selfishness, lying, gluttony, maybe pride. And because of those things, I can't possibly be used by God to do what he's called me to do. Well, you're right. You don't have the time or the talent to do what he's called you to do, and you are totally not good enough to serve such a great God. But, and, and that list of weaknesses you came up with, you left a few key ones out. But the message of Barak's life and the message of ours throughout Scripture is this. God never asked you to be great. He asked you to take him at his word. And so as Barak sits there and hears that God has already promised him the victory, I can't. It's not, not in me to do. And so he, he stayed and he didn't move. But God has told us that we don't do this alone. God has repeatedly told us that, that we are to do this. We are to serve him. We are to open our mouth. We're to tell others about Christ. We're to, to go out and serve the less fortunate. We're to serve the more fortunate, even though we feel really insecure about that. We're to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, and he's called us to do it. And we're like, I just can't do it. Well, here's the amazing thing. Not only has God called you to it, he's given you the power to do it. And he promises to be with you while you do it. See, God, God comes to you um, when you feel weak and spent and tired and small. And instead of God coming to you in those moments where you feel so, so tiny 
and saying, do more. God says in those moments, no, be still and behold your God. I will never call you to do something that I will not empower you to do. Because God is faithful. That means he's consistent, he's truthful, he's never failed, he's never going to fail. You will not be the one he fails first because he will never fail. He has consistently, time and time and time again, in history and in the present moment, he has consistently showed up, sometimes in ways we never would have expected, but always in ways that we need most. He doesn't want you to be the superman of faith. He doesn't want you to be the wonder woman of faith. He just wants you to trust him. He wants you to take him at his word right where you are. One of the things that was said during the ladies' if gathering in February by a lady named Jill Briscoe was this. He wants you to serve the place that is right between your two feet. Are you? Or is your list of weaknesses just piled up so high that you're pretty sure you're the one that God can't give the strength to accomplish what he wants you to accomplish? You don't need to be a superstar, folks. It's the lie of our culture today. We, we, we fall for it every time. You can do whatever you want to do. No, you can't. I can't dunk a basketball. I really want to. I do. I, I would love to. There, there's a problem, though. I can't jump more than a foot and a half. And when I do, I land on my face. Parents, don't tell your children the lie. There are things that God has equipped them for, both in gifts and in talents. And you should fan those flames. And you know what? You should encourage them. I'm getting way off on a soapbox here. You should encourage your children to try everything. I know you think little Johnny is the next superstar. He's not. But that's not failure. Success is long obedience in the same direction. Success is, is not being wonderful and great and getting your name recognized or even getting a scholarship. It's not any of that. You know what it is? Success is being faithful with the opportunity that sits right in front of you. Moms and dads, that's your children. Serve Christ as you serve your children. Husbands, that's your wife. That is your primary ministry that you should continue to strive to do better at. So serve your wife. It's not about doing ministry well. It's not about being the greatest little league coach of all time. It's not being the most incredible Christian that's ever existed. God doesn't expect you to be great. He expects you to take him at his word. So one of the things that we have talked about many, many times is our desire to get off the hill, to take the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ down to the bottom of the hill and beyond, into Carroll County and beyond that too. 
Have you? just, Just to be clear, that doesn't mean you carry your Bible as you leave this place. It means you're opening your mouth with people, telling them about the good news of Jesus Christ. It means you are so overwhelmed with grace, the fact that you've been set free by the unearned love of an unchanging God that you can't keep your mouth shut. Have you? I don't know where to start, okay? I'll give you a project this week. Ready? Easy one. Learn their name. I don't mean people in church. I'm still trying to do that. That doesn't count, okay? Your neighbors. Well, where we live, we don't really have neighbors. That's fine. So let it be the person who works at at Sheets. The person who you happen to just continue to cross paths with. Why do you think that is? It's because you're an agent of reconciliation for Jesus Christ. And so as they're being brought across your path, I believe that God's trying to get your attention, folks. You know what it starts with? It doesn't start with a three-point outline, two illustrations, and an invitation song at the end. It starts with learning their name. Just ask them. I'm sorry, what's your name? And then pray for them this week. Get off the hill. Well, see, that's so bland. That's not exciting. That's not, I can't come back and be like, yeah, praise Jesus, 42 people came to Christ. No. But it's being faithful with the opportunity that he landed in your lap. May we be faithful because he will carry us as we seek to serve him. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that you love us in spite of our weaknesses. God, I thank you that, that as we wrestle with truth, God, that we will always find you truthful. And so, so Lord, as we, hey, we did some goofy stuff and, and it gives us an opportunity to have the story driven into our head in a different way. We have the opportunity to, to learn in a way that other people learn best. So God, I pray that we would honor others. And then Father, as we wrestle with what it means this week, that we would be reminded again that your, your surprising way of bringing Jesus Christ to save us from our sins never took you by shock. It's been your plan since the beginning of time. And then may we, Lord, seek to serve you in a way that proves you to be faithful to your word. God, I, I ask that you would just open our mouths and that um, this week, most of us in this room will take advantage of the opportunity as we cross paths with that person, whoever it is and whatever sphere of, of relationship it falls into. God, would we cross paths with those, that person, ask them their name, and then be consistent to pray for them this week. Lord, help us to be faithful in just those little things and then watch what you do. You're good. You've called us to serve you. And you've promised to empower us and to be with us. Help us to take you at your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.